Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week, we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are continuing with our ongoing major study of the book of Daniel, but today we answer a question that many have in their minds. The question is, will we have to listen to the little horn? Last week in lesson number 21, we learned about the little horn, the eleventh horn on the beast. Remember, it has a face and a mouth that never stops talking. We learn that this is the Antichrist, the picture of the Antichrist, and he is blaspheming God day and night. Will we have to endure that torture? Today's lesson takes a slight jump into the discussion that will last for several weeks regarding the answer to that question, and the answer is the rapture of the church. It's amazing how many people, even good Christians, who are not aware of the rapture. They say that they have never heard of it, or that it isn't mentioned in the Bible anywhere. Well, today, class teacher Doug Brady will begin a short mini-series within the major study of Daniel, and here he will show us where the rapture can be found in the scriptures. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. We have a class of over 100 people who meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 a.m. in the Lavorne Hall located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. Our teacher, Doug Brady, digs deeply into the scriptures to find what sometimes eludes us as we study the Bible. We would love to have you visit our class if you're in the area. Now, Doug is at the podium, ready to begin, so let's go into the classroom of the Believer's Bible Class. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. We are taking a bit of, somebody would think, a departure, but we're starting out today asking this question. Will you get, maybe not get's the best word, will you have to face the little horn? Well... If you were to talk to a fellow by the name of Bob Guidry, you would, he would might try and change your mind. You see, will we recognize the Antichrist? There are scholars who seem certain that we will have to face him. They will tell you that people like me are failing tremendously because I am not preparing you for how to face the Antichrist. Now, he's written a book, Mr. Gundry. Now, first the Antichrist is what he's saying. He's saying that this is a book for lay Christians approaching the third millennium and inquiring whether Jesus will come take the church out before the tribulation. He says, no, that will not happen. He claims to be a premillennial scholar who marshals strong biblical evidence against pre-tribulation or pre-tribulationism. And he's not alone. Those guys are all over the internet. And they are thinking that this is what's going on. Now, we're going to look, I'm going to say from a lawyer's point of view, of what the evidence is. And we're going to consider it. 
Now, it's going to take us a little while, but I'm going to show you that the evidence is clear, that there is no question. Even people close to me have been asking the question, are you sure? And I'm going to assure that person and all of you that I am sure, but it doesn't matter about me. It's whether the Bible is sure, and the Bible is. We will not have to face and recognize the Antichrist. Now, what do I mean? Why I'm, I'm saying that kind of lawyerly, face and recognize. You might see the Antichrist before you're raptured, but you won't know he's the Antichrist because he will not have made the agreement with Israel. Once the person who makes that seven-year treaty with Israel, who's in a position of power, makes that treaty, that's the Antichrist, the tribulation has started, and now there's a seven-year countdown. But let's talk about that. Am I getting ahead? There are certain key events that are coming up that I want you to see that God has outlined for us in the scripture. Key prophetic events. The first one is the tribulation. Like I said, it starts when the Antichrist signs that treaty. Then there's going to be a time near the end of that where all the nations of the world are going to gather for war in a place in Israel called the Plain of Megiddo or Harmageddon. At the end of that, the, or in the middle of that, it's, and it's interesting, scholars a long time ago used to say the Bible's clearly an error because it says if God doesn't intervene, everybody in the world would die. There's no way you could make everybody in the world die, they would say. Of course, they didn't know about nuclear weapons at that time. But Jesus is going to come and he's going to intervene in that battle. And he's going to destroy everybody, specifically the Antichrist. And he's going to use only one weapon. And what is that weapon? A sword. And where is that sword coming from? His mouth. Exactly. In other words, he's going to just speak a word and they're obliterated. After that, there's going to be a judgment. It's called the judgment of the sheep and goats. It's spoken of in Matthew 24 and 25. After that, there'll be a millennial kingdom of a thousand years. And then a last revolt, a final judgment, also known as the great white throne judgment. And then eternity with God, where we will be living in something called the new Jerusalem. In each one of these events, there is a trigger that starts it. You can know it started when this trigger clicks. We're going to talk about an event, though, without a trigger. And that's what we're going to, to spend our time on for several weeks, uh, maybe even a longer than that. Now, one of the things you have to be prepared for, if you get on the Internet and start searching, you will find chart after chart after chart. And not too easy to read these charts. Let's show them some. Uh, can you get that one down pretty quick? How about the next one? Uh, no, well, how about another one here? Well, that one may be a little easier, but how about the next one? Well, you see what's happening. There's so much crammed in there. I'm going to try and simplify. Now, unlike some preterist people want to say, I do make a chart. I believe in a chart. You can visualize things with a chart. But I'm going to try and get it as simple as we can get it today and yet show you the key events. But... When you look at these charts, the question is, for a lot of these liberal progressive scholars, there's no rapture. They go farther than that. You see, they say there is no rapture. 
they would say the rapture is a myth. It was conjured up in the late, or pardon me, the mid-1800s, around 1830, with a guy named Darby. That's the first time ever anybody ever talked about the rapture. It, it, you see, what it really is is a means of escapism. So that people like you soft-bellied Americans won't have to really go through any persecution, you think. Well, they would cite 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing is happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also the revelation of his glory may rejoice with exaltation. Now, let me ask you this. Has America really ever suffered, American Christians ever suffered persecution? Well, the only ones are those who leave the country and go as missionaries somewhere else, like say Jim Elliott. But I am going to show you where there is a distinction about persecution that comes from the world versus having to suffer the wrath of God. Because the wrath of God is what is going to come down in the tribulation. Some people want to say, no, it comes. They're wrong. And I'm going to show you that, not today, but over the next several weeks. And I want you to prepare for it. Now, other people who, who want to argue against a rapture, they say, wait a second. Jesus only comes twice. Nowhere in the Bible does it say Jesus comes three times, only twice. Once when he was born... And once when he comes back a second time to conquer. Once as a suffering servant and a sacrifice. One as the king of kings and the lord of lords. Well, in a way they are right. He only comes to the earth twice. Touches his foot on the ground and walks on this earth. The rapture, he does not come to the earth. He is going to meet us in the clouds. He's not going to come to the earth. It's interesting. In the Jewish marriage ceremony, when the groom comes to get his bride, he will not enter her father's house. She has to come out and meet him outside. Interesting. We may talk some more about that as we go along. But they then would respond to me this way. All right. I'll tell you what, Brady. I will accept that there is a rapture, and maybe it's even pre-tribulation. If you just show me one time where it's in the Bible, you can pick any version you want, King James, New American, ESV, whatever you want, even the nearly inspired version. You pick it, show me the rapture, and I'll believe it. Well, my first response to that would be, do you believe in the Trinity? Well, yeah. Show me one place where the Trinity is in the Bible. Just one. Nope, not there. But if I get to pick any, any version that I want, I'm going to show you what version I'm going to pick. But to start with, I'm going to show you the verse in that version in the New American Standard. I want to show you uh, 1 Thessalonians 4:17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. That verb you see there in italics, caught up, that is the word for rapture. Now, is, does it say rapture in the Greek? No, the Greek word is harpazo. And harpazo is that Greek word. And I want to now talk to you about the passage 
that I am going to use, or the Bible translation, I am going to use to show you rapture in the Bible. First, I want to tell you about a guy by the name of Jerome. Some of you have heard of him. He was born in 347 AD in Striden, Dalmatia, and he died 419, 420 in the town of Bethlehem of Judea. But he spent 23 years of his life from 382 AD to 405 AD translating the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament into Latin so that he could have a version of the Bible that the common people could read. He spent 23 years doing that, and everybody scholarly now knows his translation is called the Latin Vulgate. I believe, and don't correct me if I'm wrong, that the most, the oldest copy is over in the Vatican. I think that's right. But be that as it may, I want you to now look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, in Latin. Can we see that? You see that word? I know you can't read Latin, most of you. But you see that word that's in the yellow, rapiti. The base form of that word in Latin is raptus. We took that word, and instead of translating it, it means snatching out or carrying off. We took it, instead of translating it, we transliterated it. We just took the Latin word and put it into English so that we get the word rapture. We do that from time to time. There's various reasons why. Does anybody know the most well-known transliterated word from Greek into English? Baptize. From the Greek word baptizo. Now, some people will say they did it for this reason or they did it for this reason. There's two reasons one did it to try and avoid controversy, and the second one did it for money. Let me tell you why. You see, in controversy, the word baptizo means to immerse completely in a liquid. Well, what about all these people who believe baptism is either pouring some water on somebody's head or sprinkling water on them? Well, they wouldn't go for that kind of translation. If you mistranslated it as sprinkling... The people who are biblicists like us, we wouldn't buy that translation. So you not only have controversy, you also have money of translators who are writing Bibles. They want to be able to sell their Bible to everyone. So what do you do? You just take the Greek word and you put it into English as baptized. And then you say you, you avoid all those serious problems. I don't believe in transliterating. I believe in translating. But be that as it may... I'm not doing it. So now, you notice before that the rapture is not in this group of things that we've talked about. And one of the main reasons why it's not included in that list is it does not have a trigger. Doesn't have a trigger. And I want you to see there's a reason for that. But before we go any farther, we need to ask God to bless our study. Father, as we begin to open up your word... And we see what you have promised us, what you have predicted for us, what you've told us you're going to do. Help us to accept it. Help us to understand that you have a plan, and that plan is going to be fulfilled no matter what we do or anyone else does. And that we can rely always on the accuracy of what you tell us. Now, Father, I know that you have a date planned for this rapture, 
But I pray to you, Father, urgently that it will be this fall. But at the same time, Father, I wish you could somehow figure out a way to give us just a little preview of that by snatching those poor people out of Afghanistan. Not, not the terrorist ones who want to sneak into our country, but the ones who are so needed and are going to die if they stay there. Pray that you will do that and you will bring us someone who can get that done and who won't lie to us about it. Pray these things, Father, in your son's name. Amen. All right. Why is there no trigger? Because God wants the rapture, as far as his church to be, is to understand that it is eminent. Eminent. It can happen at any time. Now, I used to hear that, and I used to think, you know, when you say that, it really creates a weakness in the scriptural position here. Because eminent doesn't fit the rapture. Now, why would I say that? Well, Paul believed in the rapture, didn't he? Yeah. In fact, he would many times when he's quoting, he said, we who are alive and remain, he noticed he was including himself in that. We will be taken, will be changed. He thought he was going to be raptured. That rapture hadn't occurred for almost 2,000 years since he said that. It wasn't imminent. Well, that's because, you see, I always thought imminent meant near or soon, about to happen. That's not what imminent means. If you look at the concept here, what eminent means is next. Next. In other words, after the ascension and after the giving of the Holy Spirit, the thing on the prophetic calendar that will happen next is the rapture. Now, there's something else that's important about it in understanding eminent that I want you to see. No. It has to happen before the tribulation. And so what you begin to see, Bonnie, and this is, I love explaining it this way. If you go down in October to downtown and you look at those stores, you know what you're going to see? Christmas decorations. All over Christmas decorations. And what does that tell you? Christmas is near, right? It's coming soon. But what does it also tell you? Thanksgiving's coming first. And it's the same way. You see the triggers and the signs that say the tribulation is coming. What do we know? It may be coming, but the rapture's coming first. Nothing has to happen, but the rapture's coming first. And so that, I think, is important for us to see. Now, the liberal scholars, you know, they always want to destroy what God has done uh, and mess up what God is trying to say. Now, that sounds, may sound really harsh, but I think it's straight out deserving. And what you're going to see is this. They have, there's now six views on when the rapture is going to occur. Now, I've, all right, six views. Uh, look at this. This is as simple as I could make it. These next key events that are coming up, tribulation, Second advent, that means the second coming of the Lord at the end uh, to stop that battle of Armageddon, the millennial kingdom, the great white throne judgment. I didn't include the, the judgment at the end of the tribulation because I don't think we need to see that right now. Now, here's the six views. Number one is the pre-tribulation rapture. Now, you notice that the rapture is before the tribulation. 
I put it even a little bit before, before the tribulation because Satan may want to have a, you know, God may give Satan a running start here. And it could even be out farther here. That's, we don't know that yet. But that's, that's the pre-tribulation view. This is the view that I hold. This is the view that I believe is biblical. This is the view that we need to rely on. The second one that you will see is called the mid-tribulation. Right here at the middle of the tribulation, exactly three and a half years into it, or 42 months, or 1,260 days, according to the Jewish calendar. Now, what's going to happen then? Something called the abomination of desolation, where the Antichrist is going to come into the temple that Israel has rebuilt, and he is going to declare himself to be God. He is going to say, everyone has to take my mark. Now, there was a time when I would say, I don't know, I can't believe people are really going to do that. Now you know why we've changed. All right. But let me ask you a question. If that's true, the mid-trib view is true, is the tribulation, pardon me, is the rapture imminent? Three and a half years have to pass before it can come. You know, perhaps today, no, it'd be perhaps in 42 months. You see that? That's important to understand why that can't be the right view. Now, the next view is the last trumpet view. You remember in Revelation, there's going to be a series of seals, seven seals Jesus is going to break. Then these angels are going to blow seven trumpets. And so I'm going to say, at the sound of the seventh trumpet, the rapture will occur. No, that's not what it's talking about. Um, we're going to get into what it means, the last trumpet, and what that can mean and what that will be. But that's not the case. But here again, would the rapture be imminent if you adopted the last trumpet view? Well, perhaps today after the seven seals and the first six trumpets. Nope, it would not be. All right, the next one is the pre-wrath view. Now, this is a view that has been gaining a lot of momentum lately. What they want to say is, we understand that the church is protected from the wrath of God. But the wrath of God doesn't start at the start of the tribulation. It starts somewhere, and most of them say about three-quarters of the way through. You could say these are three-quarter view tribulation people. That is not the case. I am going to show you. What is going to happen in the very first part of the tribulation, the first three and a half years, if we have, and I use the term eight billion people in the world because the numbers, I, if I'm doing 7.8, it doesn't work very well for me. I'm not that good of a mathematician. But with eight, eight billion, in that first three and a half years, two billion people will die. Can you imagine two billion people dying? How do you get rid of the bodies? Two billion. That's all you're going to be doing is burying people or burning them. Yes, ma'am. Well, you need to subtract the Christians that have been raptured, so it'll be eight billion minus whatever. Right, but I just use eight because it's easy to do the math. Yes, I won't be here, and you won't be here. And uh, I have heard that from China, they're going to they would lose a uh, hundred million people, hundred million people in the underground church. Yes, sir. So uh, if, if I'm reading, when I read Revelation, I don't see the church spoken to after chapter 3. You're right. Okay, so I've always thought, well, where, where are we? 
and I think we're raptured at that point. Also, I've always... In fact, let me tell you something before you finish that thought. If you look in verse 1, where the door or the window from heaven opens, and Jesus calls to John and says, come up here, that is a type or a picture of the church being taken up into heaven before the tribulation starts. Now, finish your okay. thought. I love my wife, and I laid my life down for my wife. Okay. She's my bride. I do believe that God's going to protect the bride. Yes, but do you think right before he marries her, he's going to let her get the fire beat out of her? No, he's not going to do that. If we, correct me if I'm wrong, just, I'll just tell you the way I think. If we were living in 1945 in Germany, and us Christians were living there, we would think the rapture must be happening any day now. That's what we would tend to think. They thought that in Paul's day. They thought that in Jerusalem in uh, 70 A.D. And, and, and I don't know when we're going to be raptured, but I, want to, I hope it's today, okay? I agree. Some of you probably wish it would happen before I finish talking here. <laughs> but uh, you're right. Now, there's one other view besides this that, that I can chart, and that's the post-tribulation view. To me, this is the most ridiculous of all. What he's going to do is wait till the end of the tribulation, Come down, meet us in the clouds, take us back to heaven, mount us up on horses, and come back down with us. I don't think so. God's not an elevator type person. But the sixth view, I can't even chart. It's called the partial rapture view. The partial rapture view. And what does that mean? It means they say this. There's going to be some people who are raptured at the start of the tribulation... And then other people will be raptured during the course of the tribulation. But you see, the ones at the start who are worthy of being raptured, you see, works, working its way, worthy of the rapture, they'll get. And then once some of this judgment from God hits these believers that weren't raptured, they'll say, oh my gosh, I got to straighten up. And then they'll get raptured when they become worthy. No, Jesus is not coming back and forth, back and forth and back and forth. It's not the way it's going to happen. That's not what he says. One time and one time only. Now, what we're going to do, and the way I've decided to go about this, is there are five key passages, as I'm holding up four fingers, five key passages we're going to look at. We're going to make hopefully two today. Maybe not, but hopefully two. And we're going to see a number of events, key aspects of the rapture that we will show in each of these. Now, I'm going to show you a chart. And that's half of them. Show them the next chart. There's the other half. Did you get time to read that? No. But they are in your notes. And we will look at these charts again as we, as we go on. And I, I want you to, to see that. But the first passage that we're going to look at is one that you probably don't expect. It's Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Did you know that was a rapture passage? Well, it is. And we're going to look at it. So... Philippians 3, 20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we are, of which we also, we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with his body, 
of the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to ourselves. So, the first thing we look at as we see that, Steve, are you a citizen of this earth? Uh, well, I, I am in the world's view, but not in God's view. No. You only have single citizenship. Now, in the world's view, you can have dual citizenship, not in God's view. You are not a citizen, and I tell you, you're not a citizen of Dallas, you're not a citizen of Texas, as much as we hate that, and you know, Tanya Tucker said, if I can't go to heaven, I want to go to Texas, it's the next best place, but that's not going to count either, where we're not really a citizen of the United States, we belong. Now, if that is really true, does that not affect some of our thinking about things? God's been dealing with me on that. Yes, and we're citizens of heaven. We're God's warriors. Let's stop there. But I want you to see, that's the very first thing I want you to see about this passage. And that is key. Paul was the kind of person who took citizenship seriously. Was he a Roman citizen? Yeah, he was. Did he use that to his effect? But he's saying, my citizenship, when he says our, he's including himself, my citizenship is from heaven. Now, one of the things Julie will tell you that I hate the most is waiting. I don't like to wait. But what I'm told here is to wait eagerly. When I think about that, waiting eagerly, I can think of two events that have occurred in my life. The first one is a multiple event. As my boys were growing up, and, and we get past December 15th, and the days start counting down, and they see that little calendar where things are being put in there to mark off. They can't wait for Christmas. When is it coming, Dad? How long? Now, how long away is it? How do we have to wait? And they couldn't wait for Christmas. I experienced the same thing back in February of 2001 when I was fixing to get married to that little girl right there. And I couldn't wait. And it was waiting eagerly. Now, the wrong day. I say the wrong date. 2011? 2010? Well, okay. I thought that's what I said. Neil, I'm going to have to take lessons from you here. How to cover this. Now, if we're really just a citizen of heaven, does that mean we're aliens here? Not illegal, but aliens. And in fact, you can just say, although somebody's probably going to try and make us illegal here pretty soon. But in just plain Texan, we're just passing through. And there's a song we used to sing on that, but I'm not about to sing it. So we need to understand that this earth is not our home. And that is important in a discussion that's going to follow in several weeks. Now, the next thing in this passage I want you to see our bodies will be transformed, transformed. Well, what does that mean to transform? Well, you know, when you see a long great Greek word, it's metatiskismatizo, and it means to change the figure of or transform. We took this Greek word and transliterated it into English as metamorphosis. That's where the worm turns into a butterfly. And it's basically going to be a bigger change of that from us, for us, as we change from worms into butterflies. 
Now, whose type body are we going to have when this change occurs? Whose? Jesus Christ. Did he have a glorified body? Could he do things that we can't do when he had that body? You know, it, it mentions some things like showing up in a room where all the windows and doors are locked. Uh, and it shows like just disappearing from the house of the two people on the road to Emmaus. But it doesn't tell us about the traveling instantaneously from the grave to heaven, carrying the blood to go into the tabernacle up there and uh, sprinkle his blood on the Holy of Holies, in the Holy of Holies in there. It doesn't talk about those things, but it's amazing what that body can do. And we're going to be transformed into that kind of a body. So, at the end of this passage, where are we on our list? All right. The first one, our citizenship is in heaven, not on earth. The second one, we should be waiting eagerly for the rapture. That's how we should wait for it. Now, I know some people and you know some people who wait that way. I have to, I'm working on it. I'm getting there. Our bodies are going to be transformed and the one that I didn't put in red that I should have, our new bodies will be like his. Those first four we've just seen demonstrated in Philippians 3, 20 through 21. So we'll turn to a more well-known rapture passage now. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 50. And let's see what it says. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit imperishable. But I tell you a mystery, that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable shall be put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and the mortal will have put on immortality... Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, the first thing we're seeing is here is that physical bodies, I mean, there's an awful lot of this imperishable, perishable, mortal, immortal, and it kind of confuses us a little bit, but physical bodies don't work in heaven. The body you have now will not work. That's going to have to be changed. And so your body will change, be transformed. Secondly, though, it says this thing is a mystery. Now, what does a mystery mean? Does that mean something scary like Boris Karloff? You know, that kind of thing? No, it's not talking about that. Does it mean some special thing that God has come and told you yesterday? No. What it means is very simple. It's a secret. Now, it's something my wife hates. She doesn't like secrets. Or at least secrets that aren't including her. But God had certain secrets that he would not tell people. Did he not love Daniel? Yes, he did. But he didn't tell Daniel about the church. He didn't tell Daniel about the rapture. He didn't tell Daniel about some other things. The reason why is because he, Israel was going to have to make a decision whether to accept the the Messiah or not. He didn't want to say, well, you make that decision, but I already know you're going to make it wrong, so I'm telling you, you're, you're not going to do it right. No, that inhibits a decision. You know, if I come home and Julie says we're going out tonight, 
which of these two outfits do you want me to wear? And you better answer correctly. (laughs) You know, that kind of uh, has a chilling effect on the decision making. God's doing the same thing here. Maybe the easiest way to understand this, it's a New Testament truth that's never spoken of in the Old Testament. A New Testament truth that's never spoken of in the Old Testament. But that's what this concept of mystery is. Now, the second thing he says, we shall not all sleep. What does that mean? Yeah, this is their way of talking about death. Now, I want you to see something. Is that talking about all death? I don't think so. I think it's talking about death of believers. In other words, when you die as a believer, you're going to wake up in a wonderful place. If you die as an unbeliever, you're going to wish you never woke up. And that's before you ever get to the lake of fire. So this is saying a bunch of my followers will die. Some will not. There will be a terminal generation that will be alive and be raptured without facing death. But many of them will sleep. You see, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Notice how Paul is including himself in the group that's not going to die. And yet he did. The rapture didn't come for Paul yet. But it will. Then he says, what, how long was this going to take? Is this a process of any great length? No. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for a trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So you have this here. It's not only not a mystery uh, anymore to us. It's not something we need to be concerned about as far as death goes. But, and and I went through some of these passages on sleep, meaning death. I'm going to let you look at them because we don't have time to, to look at those. But let's look at this concept of timing. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, this is the Greek word atomos. Can you think of the English word we get from that? Adam. It means uncut, indivisible. In other words, the smallest amount of time that there can be. Now, we always keep finding more and more divisions of time. What do they have now? Nanoseconds? Probably have something smaller than that. I don't know it. But whatever it is, God just says, you, you probably don't even know what the smallest division of time is. But I'm going to try and describe it this way to you, the twinkling of an eye. Now, so this rapture is going to be basically instantaneous. Instantaneous. Now, we saw this word, last trumpet. It's going to occur at the last trumpet. What does that mean? Let me tell you what it does not mean first to remind you. It does not mean the last trumpet judgment in the book of Revelation. It does not mean that. There are basically three explanations for this. And you know, God doesn't always tell you everything. Now, in the feasts that the nation of Israel has, there are seven. There are three in the spring, which is Passover, Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread, and then the Feast of First Fruits. And those, guess what day of the Jewish calendar Jesus uh, was killed on? Passover. There were then three days between the Passover and Feast of First Fruits during which it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the removal of sin. 
And then the first fruits came on that, on that Sunday, the first day of the week. Then there's not another feast until the middle of the summer, which is Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit came on that day. That was the promise. Now, there's three in the fall. There's the Feast of Trumpets. There's the Feast of the uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And then finally, the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. There has been no fulfillment of those feasts yet. I'm convinced the Feast of Trumpets will be the fulfillment of the rapture. The Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur will be the tribulation. And the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles will be the Millennial Kingdom. Now, some people hear me say that. They say, whoa, 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 wait a second, Doug. In Matthew 24, 25, no one knows the day or the hour. In Luke and Mark, it says the same thing as it's talking about the Olivet Discourse. Don, when we're talking about the Olivet Discourse, though, whose perspective are we looking at things from? Israel. Israel, not the church. Now, am I telling you that I know the day or the hour? Absolutely not. But I know, I am convinced, let me say it that way, I am convinced that one of these years, on the Feast of Trumpets, we will be raptured. Oh, that's what I'm convinced. If he comes today, then I'm wrong, so be it. Hooray, I'm in heaven. And I don't care anymore. But that's what I think. Now, the other thing is, all of those other feasts, they all occur of specific days of the month that is not the first day of the month. Well, why does that have anything to do with anything? Well, because... Their months are lunar months, they're 30 days, and they don't know for certain when the first day of the month is, at least when they were writing this, because you couldn't be sure when it's a no moon. And you had to wait till a day or two after to find out which day really was the first day of the month. So you didn't know, and that was kind of the concept there that I wanted you to see. Now that's, that's what I'm convinced of. During the Feast of Trumpets, there are lots of different trumpet baths but there's one last long blast. If it is on the Feast of Trumpets and those horns start sounding, what will we know? It's coming soon. What would we know to do? No, we need to start sharing like madmen and women. One day, Feast of Trumpets on one day. Sometimes it's on two because it, it, they're not certain which. Yes, ma'am. I just have to say, in the Orthodox Jewish community today, for 30 days before Rosh Hashanah, which is the Feast of Trumpets, yes. for 30 days they blow the trumpet every single day. And if you ask an Orthodox Jew what does it mean to them, they say, the king is coming. Hmm. The kings, they just don't realize who the king is, do they? But what the point is, is that there may be some preparation for us. To prepare. If in 30 days, let's say, the king's coming and the rapture's going to occur because you've heard the, the blast, do you care what anybody else thinks about you then? I think it's a warning. Well, we're gonna, we're gonna, if we know, if we're confident that that trumpet is, is a sign that the rapture's coming, then that makes it a trigger. Well, it makes an announcement. It's not something that has to happen, but it's something that will happen. Then there's a difference between those two. The tribulation can't start until there's a treaty signed. But uh, 
if God is making an announcement to us, you better get ready. And you'll see the next one too, as this concept of a warning that something's going to happen. In Israel, as we look at this, let me see. In Israel, when they were in the wilderness, Gary, they weren't all stay in one place in the wilderness. They'd have to move because uh, things would, uh, fields would be eaten up and grazing would be gone. They had two silver trumpets that God set up. And the two silver trumpets were sounded differently. The first one would sound, it would say, get ready because we're going to leave. You have to start packing up and getting in line. Everybody had a specific place to get in line, a different tribe in a different place. And in the tribe, you had a different place to be or a special place for you to be. You knew approximately how long it was going to be before the second trumpet was going to sound. And when that second sound, you're moving out. I see it again as a warning if that's what God's going to do. If, if he's going to blow, and where are those silver trumpets? Well, here again, everything that Moses created in the wilderness there when he was on Mount Sinai, where did he learn about them? Damaris, do you remember? Yes, he, God showed him. Showed him the Holy of Holies. Showed him the Ark of the Covenant. Showed him all those things. And then told him how to build them. And then specially enabled uh, Holy Bama and the others who were, who were doing the building. Now, it may be that it's those silver horns that are blown, the, the ones from heaven that alert us. Now, there could be another situation. If you remember, well, maybe you don't, but in the Jewish marriage situation or scheme, the groom, once the father tells him he's ready, and he says, go get her, the groom uh, comes to claim his bride, and when he gets close, a trumpet is, born, is blown. Now, what does that trumpet do? It tells her, he's coming, you better get ready. She's, you know, when he comes, he doesn't come alone. Why? He's got a wedding party with him. Why? He's got to carry all her stuff back. Okay? She's been preparing things. Preparing the bedding and stuff for the bed they're going to sleep on. Preparing all the dishes, the clothes. They're going to set up their own home. Usually in the father's home, adjoining to it, but it's their own home. And so that trumpet is there to tell her, I'm coming for you. Now, you know, I don't think, and this is just my personal opinion, that God wants us, if I'm driving, Julie's with me, and all of a sudden I just disappear and my car runs in and kills a bunch of children. I don't think he wants that. He's going to warn us, so we'll pull over. If the pilot's there, he ain't turn to the co-pilot and say, are you a believer? Well, if not, get ready, I'm going to be gone. If she says, yes, I am, we got to get this down quick. I'll tell you what, I'll put it down on that highway. You go back there and tell them what's going to happen so they can be saved. That kind of thing. I think there may be a whole bunch. You say, right at the last minute, my family witnessed to my paternal grandfather for years and years and years. Six days before he died, my mother shared with him the last time and he received Christ as his Savior. He does do that. And I think 
that may happen again. And when we, be, when, when we get warned, if we get warning of the rapture's coming, you better start sharing your faith as quickly as you can. Otherwise, those people are going to hell. Now, I want you to look at something else. We're going to look again at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 54. But when this perishable will have been put on imperishable, and the mortal, this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying, death has swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death for the believer is now finally vanquished, and its power over us destroyed. That's why so many believers have this passage on the gravestone, displaying the hope Death is a portal to something better. You know, if a military group comes in here and is saying, we're taking all Christians prisoners, and if you don't come along peacefully, we'll shoot you, I'm likely to say, hey, me first. I get to be up in heaven, and then I get to wait for when they send Julie up. And I'll say, Julie, don't chicken out. Meet me up there. We're going together. All right. I don't know if I misunderstood what you said, but... I'm looking at the Bible, it talks about, you know, it's up to us to recognize the signs of the times and the birth pangs and everything. So you're seeing the birth pangs towards the tribulation, which is a warning that the rapture is coming soon. And I believe it's coming soon, but that's not part of eminency. Don't confuse Israel passages with church passages. Yes, you can't put those two together. They're not the same. So there can't be a... Well, there cannot be a tribulation now, then. There ought to be one. Well, understand, tribulation is the wrath of God. Can... I mean, I'm sorry, rapture I'm in. I meant rapture. I've heard... Now, there are people who do not accept my thinking on the Feast of Trumpets. They would tell you, oh, no, he's wrong. It can happen anytime. Perhaps today. Maybe so. And if I'm wrong, Fine. On that. I'm sorry to ask this question, but I don't read it in the Bible where the trumpet is audible for me, or is it audible for only in heaven, or for heaven? I don't know that. Well, here's the thing. In the Feast of Trumpets, who's the trumpets blast for? God's people. In, the, in Israel, well, yeah, they had to hear it. Now, in the, uh, in the uh, it's a good question. Kim, but in, in the uh, wilderness, was the, were the trumpets audible for all the people? Yes. When the Jewish groom came and blew that trumpet when he got outside her village, was it for her to hear? This, this is for us to hear. I mean, I always thought, what a poor situation if there were three brides waiting in the village. <laughs> but it, but you see what I'm saying? The trumpet is for us to hear. I, I do have one thing that you'll agree with. That day that we hear that trumpet is not the day that we tell people about Christ. It is today. Right. You're right. And, and yes, I'm saying that. Be, I don't even know. If I hear that trumpet, I'm going to be like, what do I do now? I'm passing hour to be on our knees probably. Uh, I would look around like if it's like if you're in a plane and you know what's going to happen, I'd stand up and start telling, there's going to be a rapture here. We're going to all disappear. 
If you don't know Jesus, I need to tell you real quickly how to do it because I don't know how much time I have. If you're an airplane and, ask, and you stand up, don't take your clothes off whatever you do. <laughs> I'm not taking any clothes off. In fact, I plan on leaving my clothes behind. But anyway... There's that story about the man that was going down the stairwell with all the people coming down, and he kept yelling at him, call on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Yes. As he went down the stairwell with all those people. Yes. Julie. What happened to that 50 blast on Rosh Hashanah, those 50 blasts, and then the last trump? Uh, because in King James, it says, not trumpet, it says the last trump, and then it says the trumpet of God will sound. So we've got 50 blasts. That's all we've got of a warning. But the last trump is when we're gone. When we're gone, that's correct. So, and that is the way it works. In, and, and there's different types of blasts of those trumpets. Now, you say trump, trumpet is the same thing. Well, I'm saying that word is trump in the King James. Well, that's not talking about a spade or something like that. Oh, it, it is. It's talking about a blast that comes from a trumpet. One, one blast. One, but it's 50. Well... And I'm not disputing that. But what I'm saying to you is that those occur, I think, all on that feast day. So now here again, there are in modern day, the 30 days ahead, but I'm not sure God's going to be doing that with us. All I know is that I think when we look at what happens on the feast of trumpets, but wait, we're running out of time. And I need to finish this because I want to get to 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It says, therefore, my beloved brethren. Now, he's just told us about the rapture. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So this description of the rapture is not given to us in order to satisfy our curiosity, but to challenge us as to how to live and how to die. Kim, would you not, is that not what you're saying? We're not supposed to start when we know it's right at the end. We're supposed to be now. Knowing that the rapture is coming, we're to live that way, we're to wait eagerly, and so if we are confident in this coming resurrection of our Lord, he says, you can serve the Lord with confidence and strength. Resurrection hope should inspire ministry. Not passivity. Ministry. Phrase, not in vain, refers to our Lord's intent to reward His good and faithful servants. You know, the saints are going to be dressed in white garments, which white garments represent the works that they have done. You wouldn't want to get up there and be indecently exposed, would you? Well, then we need to get to work. We need to see what God wants us to do. And I'm going to tell you, I wasn't debating on this. You remember I've told you that we're supposed to obey God radically, radical obedience, immediate, unquestioning, unconditional, and then the other three. I teach a Bible class at Traditions on Monday evenings, uh, second and fourth, and this Monday I was teaching there, and I got out late from work, and uh, I had about an hour, and I thought, I'm just going to stop somewhere and get a hamburger. And uh, I stopped at a Whataburger, uh, just at Whataburger, and I'm in there. 
there's a bunch of employees there at one end of the, the place where even I sit down in the middle and I'm sitting there waiting for my food. And there at this end, there's a, looks like a mother and a child about six. And, you know, at first I'm not looking. And then once while I look over there, there's no smiling. There's no talking. After a while, I'm, I'm looking every time I can surreptitiously over there. And it's like, this is a somber, sad table. I don't know what's happened or going on over there. And then the Lord spoke to me and he said, Doug, go pray for those people. And I said, are you got to be kidding right here in this restaurant? I don't know those people. What are they going to think? They think I'm maybe a stalker or something. <laughs> you know, immediate, unquestioning. But I finally said, okay, God, I remember the last time I didn't do what you told me at a restaurant. So I got up and I went over there and I said, excuse me. It seems like everyone is sat at this table. Would you mind if I was to pray for you? Because the Lord told me to come over here and pray for you. And the mother looked at me. Tears started coming down out of her eyes. And she said, yes, we would like that. And I asked the name of the little girl. Her name was Stella. And so I prayed for about five minutes. And when I finished, I looked at Stella again. And she, she just had this stunned look on her face as if she wasn't all there. The mother turned to me and said, Stella's dad just died. And they said, I'm going to a place where they believe like I do. And we'll have 20 or 30 people praying for you tonight and for the next several weeks. And then I forgot to say, and I'm going to a place Sunday where I can have 120 people praying for you. But I'm going to ask you to pray for Stella and what's going on. But you see, God wants to use us in ministry and he wants to use us now. And I'm praying that somebody will come into their lives and, and be able to share with them so that the lives are changed because they need to understand what's going on. And we need to just be obedient. But I have a few final thoughts I want to share with you. Here's what I want you to think about just for a moment. What if, unlike I said, and more like Kim said, all of a sudden, everybody in this room just disappeared except you? Everybody just disappeared except you. What would be going through your mind? Well, I've kind of did a little research on it and figured it out. The first thing that would go through your mind is disbelief. Disbelief. Second would be anger. How could this be happening to me? I thought I was a Christian. Who, who's cheated me here? Then frustration. Finally, deep concern. And then great fear, because I think most people in here know enough to know what's coming. Now, I don't think if it happened right now, there'd be anybody in this room left. I hope not. If you have any concern about whether or not you, then you come talk to me afterwards. But are there those that you know, as of now, would be subject to that fate? Can you at least say they will be recognized and be saved, they'll recognize what happened and then they'd be saved because you've told them? Not necessarily. Over in 2 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 8, it says this, Then that lawless one, that is the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan and with all power, signs, and false wonders. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. 
there are those who would say right now, why do you think all of a sudden our government is starting to admit uh, there's UFOs and the possibility of aliens? They're preparing an explanation for when we go. Uh, you know, they had, these aliens saw and they, they, these people need to be re-educated and they're taking them to the great re-education center in the sky. You know, and then look at this. Verse 10, and with all the deception and wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Now, first of all, do you see people now who believe what's false? And they believe it with every fiber of their being. Now, this deluding influence from God, I always thought it came as soon as the rapture took place. Now, I heard somebody over the last couple of weeks who indicated they thought maybe it occurs not then, but it occurs uh, at the middle of the tribulation when people start taking the mark of the beast. And then that deluding influence will be there. And anyone who has the mark of the beast will not be able to be saved. They've had their chance and they miss it. I still lean towards the first, but I'm not in a position to say, oh, I'm absolutely right, and if you think it's in the middle, you're just wrong. But the fact is, we know people who could be subject to that deluding influence, and you may be the very best person in the world to share God's gospel with them. Some way, you need to find out to do it. Close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we can study this so important, the doctrine of the rapture. Help me to be faithful in studying and to be able to answer the quest, as many questions as I can. Help me, Father, as I present. Now, I won't be here next Sunday. Chris will be here. But, Father, after that, help me to be ready. Not only ready to present the, the rapture in this Sunday morning, but also on Sunday evenings on, on how to effectively share your faith in a pagan world. But Father, I pray that I don't have to do any of those things because you come back for us before then. Please do. Help us between now and then to give everyone an opportunity we know. Be with Stella. Let's get the opportunity for her and her mother. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.